Hi, hi. This is the Proceed Playbook Podcast, the show about Black women and women of color making bold moves in corporate and entrepreneurial spaces. Proceed is the coach in your air, pushing, encouraging, and inspiring you throughout your journey. I'm your host, Aprilene Alexander, founder of Proceed. Today, we're going to meet Akima Paul Lambert, the future first female prime minister of Grenada, all in my words and in my humble opinion. Akima recently became partner at Hogan Lovell's law firm, a firm ranked as one of the top law firms in the Chamber's 2022 global rankings. I thought Kima's story was so important, not only because of the challenges she overcame while striving to become a partner, which also included not having her maternity leave honored by her former firm, but also because she had some particularly poignant things to say about the importance of cultivating the relationships around you. I hope you enjoy the episode. Kima, thanks for doing this. I know that you have a busy schedule, so I really appreciate it. So today we're going to talk about your career and then we're going to end up with your strategic plays. So for those who have never met you and don't know you, how tell us where you are in your career and how you got there. And you can go as far back as you think it's relevant. <laughs> How long do you have? Um, I have an hour. (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. And thank you. I've seen the tagline for Pursuit, and it's an honor. It's a privilege to be here um, with a fellow Caribbean woman. You know, I'm all about the Caribbean and all about celebrating our unique identity. So it gives Mm -hmm. me great pleasure to be here with you and to discuss my career trajectory. Um, so how did I get here? I'm now a partner at Hogan Novels. Quite curiously, it's the first firm, the law firm that I trained at. But mm. I like to describe myself as coming from one of the smallest towns in one of the smallest parishes, in one of the smallest islands in the Caribbean. Mm. So how did I get here? I think a combination of determination, stupid determination, and serendipity I, I think probably not going back too far. I went to state school, then I went to St. Joseph's Convent um, in Grenada. I was very lucky to have some amazing role models and teachers and principals, Sister Gabriel Mason, Miss Margot Dubois, who really pushed me and who saw my potential. I won a regional scholarship for SCXC results in the Caribbean. I was teaching at the convent and was deciding what I wanted to do next. You were teaching at the convent? I was teaching at the convent because my mother thought, she said, you are way too young to be going off to any foreign place. You cannot even cook properly. You cannot (laughs) even clean properly. So you need to grow up. I was one year younger than my year, mind you. So I graduated quite early. So this was a 16-year-old essentially going off to do life. And my mom thought I needed a bit of maturity. Granted, her maturity was very... I remember I couldn't even go on a date with a boy that I liked. So, you know, it was it was a very weird 
maturation period, yeah. <laughs> uh, so to speak. But in any event, I remember picking up a copy of the Catholic Focus. I was a very, I was a church girl back in the day. I saw a photo of this girl called Marshall Farrell, and she had the same grades that I had. And she was off to Cambridge. So I thought, oh, maybe I hadn't thought about England. Maybe I should I should go there. And my mom was a fan of the idea because I had family members there. And my aunt went there. And, you know, the, the, the Caribbean experience is that, you know, England is just the best when it mm-hmm. comes to education and it comes to academics. So they were very happy with my decision. I applied to Cambridge. I got in. I did a law degree. I did a side in French law. Decided that France was not for me. For a very spontaneous Caribbean person, the structure and the bureaucracy, very lovely, beautiful place, but it just wasn't for me. So I decided that I was going to settle down and lay some roots for a time in London. Mind you, I never intended to stay. I always intended to go back home to the Caribbean. We all do that. We all come here. Everybody did that, right? <laughs> yeah, we all and come here just for two years. And- we came, you know, I thought, you know, and every choice that I made was predicated on the basis that, you know, I would be going home. So I became a litigator because I saw myself in court in the Caribbean. You know, I didn't want to choose any, you know, corporate or finance things. I just thought, you know, the market isn't as mature. You know, I didn't want to be a specialist litigator. I wanted to be generalist. I wanted to do international stuff. So every single choice I made was predicated on the basis that I'll be going home. Mm. 20 years later... Here I am, really enjoying what I'm doing. And I say all this to say that life can be just unexpected. We have a saying that we we use in the Caribbean that says, man appoints and God disappoints. Mm. I think it's probably the other way around, actually. You know, man disappoints, but God appoints. There is a a trajectory that's just laid out. And whether you want to call it luck serendipity, but I believe that my path is ordered and I believe that I'm exactly where I need to be. You know, I love what I do. I'm a litigator, as I said. I litigate complex disputes for companies and individuals all over the world. It's interesting. It's varied. It allows me to use my storytelling on a daily basis. And I get to to be in a leadership position in a global firm of over 2,000 lawyers. You know, how better can it really get? I mean, I could be doing this in the Caribbean, um, but... But would it be the same? Would it be the same, though? Um, No, no. You know, I think in terms of, you know, the breadth of experience, the people that I meet, how unique this role is. I was only joking, by the way. And I do get back to the Caribbean quite a lot. I have a Caribbean desk. I'm frequently there. I'm really engaged. I'm there over summer. Um, So that keeps me satisfied. We have a really great program here at Hogan Levels called Hogan Levels Ambassador. And I intend to be going to Miami for one month so I can get to the islands easier during the course of next year. It's good. It's great. (laughs) There's a writing, Mm -hmm. journalism sort of like temptation or experience you've had in your past. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I've always I've always tended to write. I've been writing. I mean, my mom has a photo of me when I was probably two years old, and I was scribbling away on her walls, and she really encouraged it. I've always been interested in the written word and the spoken word. I've written my own. I mean, we have calypsos in, in Grenada. I was a calypsonian from a young age, not because I thought I was an outstanding singer, but I thought I was a good writer and I had a message. Mm. 
So I wrote songs, I wrote articles, I won a United Nations Global 500 Award for my, you know, journalism the environment. And I was very lucky because quite a number of newspapers saw the talent in me and allowed me to have my column there um, almost on a weekly basis. So I think just having that fertile soil, mm. which I was planted, it really, you know, um, solidified my commitment to the written word. Um, I had blogs, you know, even coming here, I had a very successful blog, which I stopped when I became a lawyer because I just found that it was, it was very popular. And, you know, the temptation when you have a popular blog is that you need to just populate it. And What was the um, blog called? Um, it was actually called Kima Speak. Um, Kima Speak? Yeah. I'm going to look for it after this, Kima. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, I have it, it was a great blog. I thought it was a great blog because I covered so many different issues. But, um, and even now, Fiona Compton, who does Know Your Caribbean, she's like, listen, girl, that blog was before its time. If it was on Instagram, you know, today, you mm. know, it would have been, you know, really engaging to have something like that and you should resuscitate it. But, you know, I do what I do now on LinkedIn and it's 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 satisfying and it's interesting. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a common thread of storytelling and writing and it goes all through my, my legal experience Correct. as well. You know, I draft a lot. I, I enjoy my primary drafting. I enjoy my letter writing. I enjoy my drafting my submissions. I enjoy, you know, excoriating the other side. You know, that's what I really love. So why not? So no journalism degree or journalism temptation at all? Brilliant. Could you imagine telling your mom, your Caribbean mom, only child, only child that... I didn't know you were an only child. I am an only child on my mom's side. Okay. That I was getting this amazing opportunity to study at Cambridge and I was going to do journalism. Why not? You were expected to choose a profession and... I already let her down because she wanted me to be a doctor or some kind of medic. And she was, you know, and I had the grades and she just thought, you know, you should, you, you do, you do well at the sciences. Why don't you do that? But my heart has always been with, you know, the arts and my writing, etc. I couldn't let her down twice. So, <laughs> and I did, I do have a husband who's a doctor, so she feels a little bit better at that now. So one thing I've always been struck about you is that you seem to have a very close network of Black women from Cambridge. I want to ask what keeps you all together well, 20 years later? <laughs> I think there was some of my, you know, really grounding friends. And 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 to be honest, I have friends from Cambridge across the spectrum. I mean, one of the people I'm very close to is a German guy. And everyone said, oh, no, he's really right wing. You're really left wing. You guys wouldn't get on. And we ended up having to share a kitchen. And for the first few weeks, we avoided each other like a plague and towards the end, you know, we were we were inseparable. And I used to take him to, to soca parties and, you know, I was scared of cycling and he used to take me all over on the back of his bicycle and we're really good friends now. So I should say, you know, I have friends across the spectrum, but there's just something about my black friends that I gained. I think when I got to King, which is the first time my blackness was painted in stark relief. You know, growing up in the Caribbean, skin color, I think maybe growing up in Trinidad might be slightly different than Grenada, but Grenada is probably 80% black, um, mm. probably 10%, you know, East 
South Asian, um, a little bit mm. of maybe 5%. So it's a very homogenous place. But this was the first time that I felt like a Black person. What was that like for you? Because Well, in that baptism, you need godparents, right? So <laughs> they became <laughs> my godparents, you know, guiding you had, me. You, you had race-related godparents. I did, you know, like, okay, this is the makeup you need to use. This is, this is what is a microaggression. You know, why did this person say this to you? Why does this professor talk to you as if you're not understanding, oh, this is what it is? You know, mm. why does this other person, you know, this is where we get our plantains. This is where we get food. So, mm. you know, in that moment when I was, you know, having to re- be be reborn of sorts, you know, they were there, you know, and they faced a lot of the fire with me. And, you know, I threw myself into it. I Don't get me wrong. You know, I wasn't just sitting back and saying, oh, you know, I read a lot about Malcolm X. He's Grenadian. His parents are um, from Grenada. So I grew up very political and being thrust in that environment. You know, I joined the Cambridge student. I joined the student body, QSU. I was a black student officer. So I was baptized and confirmed at the same time. And these were my, you know, my people. And, you know, I'm very, very proud of that. Very, very proud of these genuine friendships because I think they're very rare. You know, like these are the people I can be myself with. You know, I don't have to worry if I send them a WhatsApp that they're going to screenshot it. I don't have to worry about, you mm. know, what I say, you know, I'm on edge because I might offend them. They know who I am. They know what I am. They know what my values are. I don't have to worry, you know, if I'm having a bad day, I can tell them if I, you know, if something happens, you know, we can build each other as well. And we build each other. And you ask, are they as accomplished? I would say some of them are even more accomplished because of what I look at accomplishment. You know, what what is an Mm. accomplishment? It's being at ease with yourself. It's having a career that you enjoy. Um, it's attaining success on your own terms. And I think all of the ladies have certainly achieved that and have surpassed um, expectations. I think, um, just to go back to your Malcolm X point, <laughs> a lot of people are going to be surprised at that, um, at that fact that his parents are Canadian. And I think at another time, we need to talk about how impactful Caribbean has been on civil rights because a lot of people didn't know that Kwame Toure is is um Trinidadian. He was born in Trinidad and went to Brooklyn at the age of 14 or something. So it's going to blow a few people's minds that the Caribbean is, has been a foundation and a bedrock for a lot of civil rights uprisings in other parts of the world. And people don't know that because it's not taught in school, is it? I mean, we had a whole revolution. We had a whole massive socialist yeah. revolution. You know, it's not new to us. You know, we are not, you know, easy people. <laughs> and as I say this, someone came from Trinidad, actually, and a very, very respected person, quite senior in the community, I would say who it is, and said, you know, I thought Grenada would be a piece of cake. It's 100,000 people. Trinidad is, you know, millions. And he said, yeah. this is the hardest, you know, group of individuals because we have opinions. You know, yeah. we don't, you know, we are fiery. You know, it's that Kalinago spirit. I don't know what it is. But there is definitely something in the water, you know, that gives us that fight, you know. And maybe it's because, you know, the Jamaicans are little and Talawa. Maybe it's because we're little that we have to assert ourselves more strongly. But mm. you're absolutely right that not enough people know that the genesis yeah. of a lot of the civil rights movements actually germinated and actually started in the Caribbean. So that Kalinago, like, you know, 
vibe of blood that's running through your veins. I want to talk about how you've embodied that as a Black woman in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Now that you are where you are, is there anything that you wish you'd known sooner? Well, I think knowing that the power of my network and how valuable that would be in terms of people speaking for me and people speaking about me. I was traditionally, I mean, a lot of people probably say this, but, you know, you brought up, you know, do the work and people would notice. Do the work, keep your head down, do a great job. And that didn't really serve me in the early part of my career. And when I think about it, all the real breaks that I've had has been because of someone vouching for me. I had Nina Brox when I went to Paris and she was very close to the office managing partner and I did good work for her. I took my time and was careful and she in turn vouched, you know, that I was a safe pair of hands. And when I had to qualify into my department, the head of the department in Paris made them promise, you know, in London, she said, we really wanted to stay in Paris, but if she's going to stay in London, please take care of her. You know, and Mm. she doesn't want to do this type of work, you know, make sure you give her good work. You know, it probably didn't do me any favors because they started calling me the chosen one. But (laughs) But, you see, I'm okay with that. I was okay with that, April. I'm okay with that because I I think every Black woman should have the experience of having sponsors in their lives. Yeah. Like, I, I, was, I, I had one. I felt as though I could fly and do anything. Exactly. So I, I'm okay with you. I was okay with that. I was okay yeah. with it. I have to say, I mean, it didn't necessarily help that she wasn't necessarily in the office, but she had such influence that, you know, her power traversed the seas. And there was a Jamaican partner who also looked after me. And I have to say, this was reciprocal. You know, he asked me to work on Mm. some of his matters. And again, I did a good job. I remember pointing out something to him. I think it was a, a piece of legislation that was incorrect. And he was so impressed that so many people had been through his files. And either they didn't notice or he was so fearsome that they didn't want to tell him that it was incorrect. Mm. And here was I, you know, a little trainee saying, you know, ex-partner, I think you've got this whole case wrong and the the case that you're relying on is incorrect. Mm. And he also took very good care of me. So I think the the idea of engendering, you know, cultivating your network, investing in people and in relationships and not just upwards as well you know sideways yeah some of your colleagues are the ones that are going to take the heat off you when I was in my second role you know there's a lawyer now he's a partner at an opposing firm and we just took the pressure off each other when we went on holiday I looked after his files he looked after mine you know so cultivating that sense of we're all in together. It can really yeah. make a difference to your experience in an environment. And also looking outside of what it is you look like. Absolutely. Especially if you are other and lonely. You have, you know, it doesn't work anymore to look, to kind of stay in your corner and put your head down. You really have to look outside. And the person who might look like you may not be for you. You know, let's put that out there, right? Like That's a hard lesson. I've learned that lesson. It's a very hard lesson. And, you know, I can testify to that. I remember, you know, being in organizations and I automatically thought, well, okay, there's a black woman there. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, you know, I, you know, I got opportunities. But when it came to someone who would really cap for me, who would really, you know, go into the room, bad for me, write five pages on why I was great. 
it wasn't a black woman, you know, it was a white man. I think sometimes we talk a lot about race and how it can be, you know, it can be lonely at the top, but it's up to us to 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 make ourselves not feel lonely by letting people in, right? Like, you know, yeah. looking outside our immediate network and what we look like and looking beyond that and finding commonalities with others and, and yeah. really investing in those relationships that appear as asynchronous when they actually aren't because we're united. I mean, it probably sounds a bit airy-fairy. We're united by the human condition, right? And there is yeah. something about us that can relate to someone else. So, yeah, I, I completely agree that it's important not to just get hung up. I mean, we have, there are unique challenges associated with race, but race can you know you can break down some of those barriers um, yeah do it with intentionality I have told people who I mentor to look for the white men in your organization who are not mediocre white men the person who's not mediocre is the person who acknowledges their privilege and they're interested in allyship and they're willing to help and those men exist those white men exist in the organization Mm -hmm. so you like you really they're there you you know they may not be shouting from the rooftops and they may not be making their their actions you know widely known but if you have those conversations you really you know get to to find out who they are so it sounds as though you really were I don't want to say lucky I was lucky you know and a lot of people don't like to acknowledge that luck plays a part in it as well you know it does you know some people are just lucky but you also have to create your own love what i would like young black women and young women of color in the workplace is to is to know that even if you see somebody who looks like you in a senior position you have to also do the work so you know if you get on their deal make sure you work really really hard to support them and make sure that they look good because you can't expect it to be coming from that their side only and that has definitely changed and i hope people get that I want to talk about a coach. You have a coach as a, a well-known person. How has this helped you and how long have you had this coach? I actually didn't have a coach before now. And even now, uh, my coach is probably more on an informal basis. Um, okay. I have a structured coaching relationship, but it's been great just having someone who's external to the organization. And I think it's different from a mentoring relationship where the coach is much more dispassionate and much more, these are the things that you need to do. Now, so I've used some coaching intermittently throughout my mm. career, but I have to say, I look at the the big picture in terms of having a board of directors almost. You know, I have some people I look at for mentoring, some people who are my sponsors, some people who are my advocates, some people who are my intercessors, you know, some people who are connects. You know, if I need someone to connect me with someone you know, I think you have to have some people in the front seat, but some people in the back seat. And then some people in the back seat can be elevated to the front seat. Mm. Having a variety of different people around me, it has paid dividends. It hasn't it hasn't been a bad thing. One of the things that I, I wanted to talk to you about here, which is um your partner appointment. Mm-hmm. So correct me if I'm wrong, your partner appointment happened at the end of your maternity leave. It happened at the beginning, actually. 
at the beginning of your maternity yeah, okay so talk was... us through <laughs> talk us through being pregnant with Sarai and going through this partner process and then getting appointed like tell us about that because I think a lot of people want to know how you did it how you navigated it how you facilitated the appointments well first of all you know there were various challenges because um it was the pandemic and you know my husband and I we we got pregnant, but I don't think we thought the whole thing through. <laughs> How could you not think a whole uh, because, pregnancy through? Because, um, you know, it was a very challenging time. You know, I was in the middle of a big trial, working 14 to 15 hour days every day. So that made it challenging. My son was off school. So he was mm. three, four years old. I was very ill in the beginning of my pregnancy. And on top of that, we had the partnership thing to contend with. So it was a very tricky time. And on top of that, my pregnancy was not straightforward. My daughter was quite small for her gestational weight. And there were there was all this stuff with not being able to go into hospitals, you know, men not able to be there that I had to contend with, different hospital policies being suspended. So I had a condition called cholestasis, which meant that, you know, my you know, some aspects of my liver was compromised and I had dreadful symptoms, which meant I couldn't sleep in and out of hospital and conducting a trial as the main senior associate and having to make time for a three-year-old and having the partnership interviews on top of that. So I think it was a very, very, very challenging time. And if it were an internal partnership process, it would have been slightly easier, dare say, but it was actually external. So just for context, uh, my old firm, that's the first firm I worked at, Mm. asked me to come back together with some members of my team at my then firm. So um, partnership process is quite extended. It requires a number of interviews with a number of individuals. You know, you could be doing up to 18 to 30 interviews and having to put your game face on when you're not feeling well. And, you know, that was quite challenging. I think my last interview was two days before I gave birth. I had a scheduled C-section. This was by choice, by the way. You know, no one was forcing me to do it. Mm. But I really wanted to get it done before I had the baby because I just knew once the baby arrived, things would be very different. Did they know that you were pregnant? Yes, I disclosed that. And how did they, like, how did they receive it? I think you receive it as you would. I mean, they were very supportive, very, I don't think, I think in this day and age, it's just a natural consequence of life. I don't think it would, I mean, if someone is joining your organization and, you know, is going off on maternity leave for a short while and they intend to be there for quite an extended period, I don't think, I really don't think it makes that big of a difference. Mm. But um, they were very sweet. You know, I received gifts when baby was born. You know, they were very, my current firm were very supportive. My old firm didn't honor my maternity leave, um, just putting it out there. And, you know, my current firm decided, you know, they didn't have an obligation. I didn't work with them. And they said, okay, you can have, you know, as a partner, you're no longer an employee. You know, you don't get maternity leave in the old sense. But, you know, they recognized that and and really made allowances for me and said, you know, you can come back. I think I planned to come back one day a week. And I realized I was just not the kind of person that could do one day a week. Mm. And I ended up, you know, doing more days. But it was really the cadence of coming back was really left up to me. And it was quite a good sort of 
lead in because wasn't working full throttle and I was able to, you know, work hybrid and to see my baby pretty much every day. It was a, a very, very protracted kind protracted of strange process. process. Yeah. It it ended well and I felt really lucky that I was able to join a firm as a partner and have my little girl. If you had to describe the partner process, the interviewing process in one word, what would you describe? I mean, 18 to 13 interviews, what are you talking about? What are you doing? I think intense, you know, intense. So you'd have an hour and a half with four people. And, you know, it's not an aggressive process, but, you know, it's, it is intense because, you know, at the end of the day, you are joining a business and, you know, they're entitled to question, you know, as a lateral, you know, what is the business case and what are you going to bring mm. to the table? So I would describe it as intense. You know, I was it one of the most challenging things I've done in my career? Yes. Was it not enjoyable? I would say no. I actually enjoyed most of the people that I met with. I pretty much enjoyed meeting with everyone. Mm. I think, you know, it definitely gave me a challenge because I had to be very clear and crystal clear about my purpose. And it allowed me the opportunity to really reflect on the next steps of the journey. When did you start preparing to become a partner? At what point in your career you go like, uh-huh, I got to start to, like, these are the steps that I need to take. These are the projects that I need to be on. These are the deals. Like, when? I don't think I was ever that intentional. And I, I wish that I were that intentional. As I told you, I when I started off, I didn't really have a grand plan to remain in this jurisdiction. So I kind of had a, a very laissez-faire attitude towards my career, which I wouldn't recommend. I think I really started to become invested. I was about four or five years PQE when I realized I really liked the job and I was quite good at it. I tried to, first of all, I moved to a different firm that I felt um, would allow me to do a mix of what I really wanted to do, some litigation and some arbitration. I also felt that I needed to get staffed on some of the bigger matters. So I was really deliberate about going around and making sure that I was getting that management experience so I could add that to my portfolio. And I worked really hard on the matters that I was staffed on and tried to add value, not in terms of just doing what I was allocated to do, but going beyond, you know, taking initiative, you know, sorting out the bills, doing client interface you know, researching points that hadn't occurred to the partners at the time, taking responsibility for business development. So all of those things, you know, I didn't really have a Machiavellian desire, you know, to be a partner. You know, ambition is probably made of sterner stuff, but, you know, to <laughs> quote um, Shakespeare. But what I when I realized that, you know, I wanted to be in private practice, I made it very, I was very intentional about ensuring that I was positioning myself to fully take advantage of all the opportunities that were presented to me. How, how many times did you say no to something whilst being scared that it probably, would, you know, it was probably the right thing to do, but something in your gut told you no? 
Well, I think I definitely said no to working for certain individuals. So, for example, there was one partner who was convinced that I couldn't write. And if it's one thing I knew I could do was write. I decided that, you know, if anyone had already made up their minds that I couldn't write and it was so patently untrue that I was going to do everything not to work for that individual. And I found people that had a much better disposition and more open to working with me. So these are some of the things, you know, you have to preserve yourself. It's all about self-preservation. You can't be letting yourself be the sacrificial lamb. I'm very bad at saying no, I have to say. I, I'm usually the person, you know, doing it, doing it all. You know, can you mentor someone? Can you appear for a graduate recruitment event? Can you, in my last role, can you roll out a fitness space? You know, can you look into yeah. associate salaries and come back with a benchmark? Can you mentor this person? One of the things, and you asked, what, how did I prepare? I think I learned on the job that you do have to say no to say yes to yourself because I was foregoing a lot of opportunities, growth, that, that would have offered me growth. And instead saying yes to every single person or every single individual who made a request, you know, five-minute coffee to pick your brain and you know they don't even know why they want to pick your brain they just want that FaceTime and you know I had to just be very very greedy I would say with my time recognizing it as my most my most powerful and useful commodity. You said something about the partner who was convinced that he couldn't write and that's something that I want people to consider. If there's somebody in the workplace, and I can understand if this person is your immediate boss, it's going to be challenging. But if there's somebody in the workplace who is committed to misunderstanding you, stop trying. Like preserve yourself. Try and find a way around it. Get strategic because somebody who's committed to misunderstanding you will never understand you. That's true. To get it clear, I'm not saying don't accept legitimate feedback. Yeah. I'm, I'm always clear that I will always accept legitimate feedback. I think the turning point for me in that scenario, I think I shared that on LinkedIn, was, you know, I gave him something someone else had written and he thought I had written it. And he, you know, he completely demolished it, but someone else had written a perfect draft. I knew then that it wasn't about the writing, that it was about me. About you. So um, I think stories like that, you know, you just have to be very careful as to how you show up and very careful as to, you know, how you you make decisions in the workplace because they can really affect your experience of an organization. Has your in 10 years time career ambitions changed post becoming a mom? That's a hard question. I think my ambition has sharpened. I don't think I, I think I have the same ambitions that I had in terms of my purpose, mm. living my purpose and doing work that's meaningful to me. And I think becoming a parent really put that in stark relief. I'm not going to make all of the sacrifices, spend all of this time away from my children to be unhappy in my work and in the pursuit of something that I don't enjoy doing. So having children, I think, sharpened it. But it equally, it's a bit of a dichotomy. It also put it into perspective. And 
But I putting it into perspective, I think I previously I always felt like I could outwork everyone. You know, if there was work that needed to be done on a weekend, I was the person putting up my hand. If there was extra reading that I could do to make my client's case look better, I'll be the one doing it. I don't have the luxury of that time on the weekend. My time is now dedicated <laughs> to my children on a weekend. So it means that I have to be really, really economical and try and, you know, not to waste the time that I do have. So I would say from that perspective, it's also added a, it, it's added that additional level of perspective and economy um, to my ambition. And anything I do now, I had to do it because it, it provides joy, sparks joy in that Marie Kondo way, or um, it's really necessary to my development. Any advice would you give to moms in the workplace with ambitions of furthering their career to a senior level like yours? In terms of advice, I would say, you know, work-life integration. I think sometimes we unrealistically search for work-life balance. I think it's important to recognize as mothers that you, you will have to tailor your role to, mm. and, and and also maybe not just making it particular to moms, you know, it's, it's, it's parents really, you know, it shouldn't just be the mom having to do all of that. You know, we, we advocate a lot for allies in the workplace, but our first ally has to be at home. Um, and my husband is very good at that. I mean, last night I was just kind of looking from the outside and, you know, I was trying to feed the baby and take the kids up and he was doing the dishes and putting all the stuff together. And, you know, this holiday period, we spent a lot of time with the kids, like, you know, bringing them up, bringing my son up to speed because of all his football on his timetables. And he took the leading role in all of that. So I think picking well and making sure that husbands and you know if you don't have a husband partners I should say to be inclusive take a a central role to ensure your success you know you can't be asking for flexibility at work and flexibility from the part of your employers and you're scared to, to ask for it at home and then the last thing I would say is relying on your support network my mom and my husband's mom are very active supports in our lives but we also you know we have a good network of babysitters nannies cleaners you know anything we can outsource we would then reason <laughs> you do you know you do have to make allowances for that if you want the actual time with your children you do have to make allowances for the fact that this is a very very demanding role so in addition to being Okima to me you are very much a Caribbean woman I've, you're, and you're very much a Grenadian. And I love that because I'm very much Trinidadian. How do you manage your that identity that is so, so visible? You make it visible. How do you manage that on, link, on spaces like LinkedIn, where you're also very visible and open? And how has that developed over the, the course of your career? Yeah, I think in, early on in my career, I, I was very tentative about it. And I remember at a Cambridge supervision, someone kept telling me, what, what? You know, she couldn't understand my accent. The strange thing was that she was from Northern Ireland and she <laughs> was speaking with a Northern Irish accent. And, you know, it made me feel inadequate. So I ended up with what I call a mongrel accent, which isn't really a Grenadian accent. It isn't even an English accent. 
it's just an amalgamation of so many things. And yeah. it's one of the things that I probably don't like because I can literally have a different accent depending on who I'm speaking to. And it can mm. be a good code switch, but I know that it lies in that genuine insecurity from that period where I was made to feel that my accent, you know, wasn't comprehensible when I think it, it really is. So from then, you know, when I got into the workplace, I saw everyone sporting their accents. I saw Americans sporting their accents. I saw Scottish people talking with a Scottish accent. And I thought, why am I not speaking with a Caribbean accent? You know, we are who we are. And I really had a revelation just in terms of, you know, I saw so many people try to contort themselves into what they thought a city lawyer should be. And it wasn't attractive to me as a as a Caribbean woman. I didn't feel that I could play well at being anything other than myself. I felt strongly that I should be who I was. So I decided that I was going to wear my hair locks. I decided that I was going to show up in the fullness of who I was, because that was when I was my best self. Mm. And I don't see it as, I don't think about it anymore, actually. I don't, I really do not, because I think it's such, it's the essence of who I am. Mm. I am the product of my environment. I'm open, I'm fun, I'm spontaneous. I like a good line. You know, I, I like carnival. I, like carnival. Yeah. I can talk to people. I like people watching. I like nothing better than sitting on a step or a veranda. You know, I like color. You know, so there's nothing that's inherently bad in any of those things. Mm. And I think they definitely helped me to bring the source to my relationships and to my network. You know, mm. this, this, I see it as an added value, as a benefit. Yeah, I'm fully comfortable and confident in the fact that I, Akima Paul Lambert, I'm a Caribbean woman. <laughs> I remember uh, when I moved here, because I code switched, like, especially for this podcast, someone was telling me, April needs bank teller voices on. And I was like, oh my God. But <laughs> I remember when I moved here, the girl next to me, I went on, I went on holiday and I came back and they were like, Slow down. I can't understand you. You've gone home and your accent has come back even stronger. So now <laughs> I have to like really watch your lips. And I'm like, do you know the history of my island? This is your <laughs> this is your English. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I admire your personal branding, especially on LinkedIn and or in other spheres. And how do you manage that personal branding? And are there things that you would stay away from? I shy away from the term brand because I feel like a product, like, you know, a commodity. Mm. I'm much more comfortable with what are my values, you know? Mm. What, what is it that makes me tick? What is it that I'm trying to convey and what is my message? So I think that's really what I try to put out there that, you know, I am a litigation specialist. I am really passionate about DNI and organizations. Um, I'm a mother. I want to coexist in an equal world. I really want the world to be better at ESG, environmental, social governance, and so many other things. I mean, there's so many facets to my personality, so it's quite difficult for me to put it into, I would say, a brand box. 
But um, for what I do, I think it definitely is something that I enjoy. I enjoy conveying that and I, I value all of the experiences and the opportunities that it has brought to me so far. Have you ever gotten any negative kind of backlash or feedback from your Friday post? Of course. You have? Of course. I mean, you just have to face it, April. I mean, if you do these things for validation of others, you you, mm. you would be in a very uncomfortable place because I write to provoke, to make people uncomfortable deliberately, not in an offensive way. But if you want to activate change, particularly from an equity perspective, particularly the stuff I do on DNI, people will be provoked. One of my pet peeves is I never post anything personal on LinkedIn, but, you know, this is almost like a value judgment for, for those who do. But people buy from people. People work mm. with people. We do not work with machines. And I want to get to know the people that I work with better. I want to know what makes them tick. I want to know what they care about. I want to know whether they're having a bad day, you know, mm. because that affects my relationship with them in the workplace. So yeah. you want if your if your aim is to get any everybody on site, I mean there's a famous saying, you're not a roti, you can't make everybody happy. Right? Yeah. You know, that doubles. Yeah, you can't make everybody happy. So there'll definitely be I've had, you know, people saying, Well, it's all about you. I've had people who disagree fundamentally, particularly with the the abortion rights. That was quite intense. I've had in personam attacks. I've had, you know, but I don't focus on all of that. You know, mm. I focus on my messaging. I focus on the positivity. I focus on all the people who come to me and say, you know, I really resonate with this. I really want to say this. Thank you for saying this. You know, mm-hmm. these are my. This is my tribe. Right. Quite frankly, you know, I really do not care. <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe it's that Grenadian. Yeah, that's a Caribbean thing. Yeah. I really do not care that yeah. there are some people who don't like it or don't like my content because if you don't like it, it was not intended for you. Meant for you. So, mm. you know, we move on, still we move, you know. Yeah. And the work, that I have to do remains the people that I connect with and the job that I have to do remains. And every one person I've met who doesn't like what I'm doing, I've met a lot who do. And crucially, my firm is completely behind me. And of course, my opinions are always mine. But, you know, I've been, you know, asked to present on, you know, my strategy, you know, People in the firm have come up to me and have said, doesn't matter, actually. Yeah. Really, really appreciate it. It's like helping people get to know you even more. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to take that Kalinago Caribbean spirit (laughs) and you're going to tell us the secrets of your playbook what are the three things that you would, your three strategic plays that you would impart to me if I decided tomorrow that I was going to be a lawyer? Can you imagine? Oh my God. And I was going to go to Cambridge mm-hmm. and do law. I'm joking. But what are, what is your, your three strategic plays? 
I would say, first of all, get the basics right. Take pride in what mm. you do. Do a good job. The mentoring and the sponsoring relationships that I received was because I actually took pride in what I did and did a good job for the people who actually mentored and sponsored me. So I think that's the first thing. And I think, you know, it's very excitable now. Everybody wants to be 30 under 30. Everybody wants to be an influence, everybody. But you do need to get the basic building blocks right. I think that's the first thing. Second thing I've touched on, you know, don't ignore your network. It's very easy to, you know, just to be inward focused and to focus on, you know, what you're putting out, to focus on, you know, your immediate priorities. But make time to go out there, to meet people, to engage with your peers. They're the ones that are going to grow up with you. They're going to be your contemporaries. They're the ones going to refer work to you. They're the ones that are going to refer opportunities to you. And make sure that, you know, you have a tribe around you as well that can support you in moments of self-doubt, in moments of, you know, weakness, in moments when, you know, you may not have all the answers. And I think that's what my sort of Cambridge tribe and even other people that I've met, you know, along the way, they've actually provided for me. And the third one is to be authentic. I think one of the things that I've learned is, you know, your authenticity just goes a long way. People sense your vibe. You know, you can't pretend your way into a relationship. And that's Mm. what sponsoring and mentoring is. You know, it's really building a relationship. I can sense when people are holding back. You know, you don't want to be that mysterious person in the room. You know, when you're mysterious and you don't offer anything about yourself, no one cares enough to actually invest in you. You know, who are they investing in? They don't know you. So how can they sponsor you? How can they mentor you? So I think mm-hmm. that's the next thing, you know, just be authentic. There's no one is saying, you know, come into work with a kind of a costume. You know, we're not saying that. <laughs> we're simply saying that the very things that appeal to you. So for me, it was forming a firm's Caribbean desk and making sure that I'm marketing to the region that I'm from and making sure that the opportunities that are presenting themselves, they're actually, you know, aligned. And it has been a great selling point from a business point of view, just being able to work for the region that I that I that I belong to. I'm from. So mm-hmm. it's you know, it's a great alignment of authenticity and actually business values. I like that last one. I have one last question for you. Probably two, but let's go with one. So pretend it's 2020 or 2019 and you're Akima you're Aaron's and well not yet Sarah's mom you're Sean's wife hi Sean you listen me you're a soon-to-be partner in a law firm you're a holy sea representative for Grenada you're a mentor you run a collective for young lawyers alongside our friend band you're a carnival band section owner <laughs> and Akima how do you do it and I know that these are all things that are important to you, but how do you find that 10, 15 minutes for yourself? Well, I think all of those things are myself, you know, they're not separate from me. You know, I enjoy doing a lot of these things. I take enjoyment in being a mom, you know, and mm. I, I find, you know, going to the park with my daughter and conversing with her. This is something I'm doing for myself because mm. I actually like it. 
In terms of self-care, I mean, I think sometimes people think self-care is just relaxing, doing yoga, a spa day. And I, don't get me wrong, I like a good spa day with some fizz. And my, my two-year-old actually says to me, she went into a spa with me and she just sat on the chair and she covered herself with her, her <laughs> towel and said, I just need to relax. And I don't know what she means. She meant she by this. so funny. She wanted to relax. I don't know why. Yeah, so I think people think self-care is all of that, but I do try and find some time to have some downtime, particularly with my husband. We have penciled in days to have dates, and some days I just decide I'm not going to work this evening, I'm just going to read a book, which is my absolute favorite thing to do in the world. Mm. I'm not going to go out to dinner, I'm going to turn down drinks, I'm going to turn down you know, some of the social stuff that I populate my calendar with sometimes and say no to other things so I can say yes to myself and rest good old rest I had a nap yesterday you had a nap Akima <laughs> and sometimes nap is all you need maybe you're making try to it but honestly just having an hour in the day just to re- to rest mm. rest as I said is a form of resistance it's saying no I don't, I'm not supposed to be in work mode and doing mode all the time. I can just, mm. and I think that for me is the best form of self-care, just having an opportunity to rest. Do you still see yourself being the first female prime minister of Grenada in, in 30 years time or 20? But I don't know if I ever predicted that, right? Like I have said that. I have said that. I think, have I said it to you publicly as well? I think I think a few people have said this to me. I have said it. In fact, sometimes I go like, oh, meet my friend Akima. Yeah, she's a future first female prime minister of Canada. I've said that well, a couple I think of times. My, the political party I support is in opposition. So, But that's only for now. They could be in power <laughs> again, like whenever the next okay, election is. Okay, Prilin. To be completely honest, as I tell people, I was never, I had never, as a growing up as a child, you know, had political ambition. I always wanted to do something in the human rights space and some things around humans. Um, I don't know where this will lead. I'm now a, a, a committed member of my party and I believe in the ethos of my party actually. You know, we are a working class, you know, we're for the common man and that really appeals to me. Mm. And I think just coming from my background in a community that was called Grand Pover, Great Poverty, I really identify with the values of the new national party in Grenada. At the moment, I'm really happy in the space that I am. And, you know, time will tell, you know, I'm really happy here. I'm really happy supporting my son. And um, you're asking me really difficult questions. You know, Ladies and gentlemen, this is, <laughs> this is her first political answer. To, she, this, is, this is it. I'm glad we've heard it first. So in like 20 years time when you're being sworn in and, you know, all of your friends and your network are there. I remember I'll be like, yes, now, like, you know, it's a politically correct answer. <laughs> I know, but you Akiva, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation and I am a great admirer of you. I love oh, that really? you are so, like, Caribbean and you're so Grenadian and I, I just love it and uh, congratulations on your partnership I don't know if I even told you when you got it but congratulations thank you so much for taking time today and see you soon okay and thank you for having me on Pursuit thank you All right. 
The biggest takeaway for me from this conversation is to invest in your network. Very important advice from Kima this week. You never know who will reach back down that ladder to give you a hand up. I love this. To learn more about Akima, you can visit us on Instagram at Meet Pursuit. Check the show notes for more information about all our guests and the Meet Pursuit community. Next week, I'll be talking with Annalisa Wilcox, the first enterprise relationship director I've ever met. Find out exactly what that role is on next week's episode. Pursuit was produced by Iwan Obanyan, production assistant Adida Mola Bajamo, with production by II Studios. Thank you so much for listening.